2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: The bad thing is the manipulation. The problem is that these platforms, and I mean specifically things like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, um, the only way they can make money is when somebody is paying them out of the belief that they'll be able to manipulate the users. It's actually a pretty simple system at its core, and it's it's one that is not survivable. I mean, if it just keeps on running the way it is, uh, it'll destroy us. Jaron
2: Lanier was there at the beginning. He helped build the Internet, and he was one of the creators of virtual reality. But now, he thinks something has gone very wrong with our new digital world. Actually, something very, very wrong. And this at a time when we communicate with one another, it seems, more through social media an actual socialization. Sharon. this is really great to be talking to you. And you, you've written this provocative and scary book. And the, the provocative part is right on the cover. Ten arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now. And the scary part is when you open the book and you actually read what your arguments are. They're truly scary. they're watching us all the time. And when I say they, I don't mean people in these corporations. From what I get from your book is that there are algorithms watching everything we do online.
3: Yeah, it's uh, the peculiar feature of our times. Uh, We have these programs that are gathering data about us relentlessly. Uh, They're created by people who don't really have the means to fully understand the implications of what they're doing because everybody's compartmentalized.
2: So they didn't start out to be evil about watching us. I, I think you make that point.
3: Well, <laughs> or, you, or did they? <laughs> I mean, um, I was there when the whole system started up, and my assessment of the people I knew. Is that um, it was entered into by mistake and innocently? I, I believe that Google started sweetly and with good intentions, but here's the thing: um, there's a fellow named Sean Parker who was the first president of Facebook, who has said publicly, "Yeah, we knew we were using techniques that were engineered to be addictive, that had been uh, meticulously crafted and and refined. We knew we were doing all these things. I knew him at the time, and I really don't think they did know, and I think he's imagining himself in retrospect to be more of an evil Bond villain than he really was.
2: <laughs> you quote him in the book as saying, we we have to give them, the user, a shot of dopamine every once in a while. Meaning this and dopamine has a reward uh, hormone, right? Where we feel good when we get an indication that somebody read our posting and liked it and we, we're liked by somebody. And that makes us feel good. That I presume the point of that is to keep us online. Is that the main point?
3: If we're speaking on scientific terms, we should say that there's a lot about the brain that isn't understood. And the dopamine hit is a common term in Silicon Valley for the reward function in behavior modification regimes. But the exact function of the different neurotransmitters is still, uh, you know, uh, remain, th- there's still a lot to be understood. So, but- so
2: it's shorthand for a reward.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a shorthand or sort of, it's a sort of a techie way of talking about some very old science of, of behaviorism. But the thing is, um, these, um, semi-periodic rewards, uh, that are so successful in behaviorism, um, occur in the midst of punishment. <laughs> See, that's the crazy thing. Um,
2: so you get positive and negative, uh, feedback at the same time.
3: So, um, just to, Recall the history of behaviorism. One of the earliest behaviorists and probably the first celebrity one was Pavlov, and one of his famous experiments was first conditioning a dog to get the reward, which was a treat, when a bell rang, and then turning the bell and see that the dog salivated even without the food. So what he proved is that you could use a symbol as the reward uh, when you're when you're doing training or, or behavior modification, and so. uh, uh, And a lot of um, addictive technologies have to use symbols because they don't have any other choice. For instance, gambling does exactly that. Um, You might say, well, it's real money. Well, it sort of is. Mm -hmm. Online gambling actually is more like playing a video game. And video game addiction is definitely symbolic for the most part.
2: I I noticed that I, I play Words with Friends, and they just downloaded a whole new version of it that is full of all kinds of childish rewards. (laughs) <laughs> badges badges and things like that yeah. I, I had a, a cut a swath through it and turn off so many uh so many examples of that what what are they trying to get me to do play more times
3: well so almost anybody who designs a game will incorporate some of the techniques of symbolic addiction creation uh to get you interested, but that in itself is not necessarily terrible. It becomes bad when it becomes uh, manipulative and damaging. And um, the thing is that in in, in classical behaviorist experiments, if um, the reward has to be punctuated, right? Like if the candy is always available, then it's nothing. It has to be separated by gaps where the candy isn't available or the bell or whatever the symbol would be for the reward. and in fact, one of the most interesting and surprising results is that, uh, let's say you have a dog that's trying to get a reward. If the reward is not entirely reliable, if it comes late sometimes or sometimes it just doesn't come, that kind of ambiguity seems to create more fascination within the brain. The brain is trying to understand the pattern. And when it's elusive, the brain latches on more and more. And so, imperfect feedback actually is more addictive than perfect feedback.
2: This sounds exactly like what happens when you're in front of a slot machine. The motion of pulling the lever becomes as important as winning, but you, you can't predict when you when it's going to come out, but you're constantly saying things like, this hasn't given me a payoff in a thousand tries. It's sure. due for one now.
3: That is the process of psychological addiction right there in one sentence.
2: Okay, so I get how slot machines and video games can become addictive. But I was curious how Jaron took the leap from there to saying that when I use them, social media like Facebook and Twitter deliberately manipulate me, along with millions of other
3: users. What techniques do they use? And is it really that bad? The problem is that these platforms, and I mean specifically things like YouTube facebook twitter um the only way they can make money is when somebody is paying them out of the belief that they'll be able to manipulate the users that's their only economic incentive there's nothing else
2: so they're not they're not just making money out of putting ads up there they're putting they're, they're selling their ability the company the the uh, let's say facebook is selling the ability to change my behavior is that right
3: yeah so there's a line that's been crossed. And I think I think this is a clear red line, at least to my point of view. Um, advertising per se, getting a message out there in the hopes of persuading people, uh, you can find it annoying, you can dislike it, but uh, I, I think on the on the balance sheet, the biggest balance sheet, it's probably positive even. But what's going on now is something that we shouldn't call advertising, even though the companies do call it advertising, because what we're doing is we're taking in data from people in real time, and then algorithms are testing what variations of the experience that's given back to people will have an effect on the person's behavior, and then they incrementally adjust the experience the person is given to find some way to adjust that person's behavior so you're you're locked into this sort of relentless incremental algorithmic approach to modifying your behavior in a way that you can't really be aware of and that nobody understands there's no there's no scientist tracking these things to understand exactly why they work it's just pure correlation
2: is the behavior that they're changing Just the behavior involved in buying a product, or are there other behaviors that they're selling the ability to change?
3: Well, here is where it gets dark. If this were strictly only about getting you to buy one brand of coffee instead of another brand of coffee, honestly, I would not be worked up about that. However, it's this huge red carpet, this huge invitation to bad actors to come and do exactly the same thing, whether they become official customers or not. A very typical thing that will happen is a bad actor will try to repress a vote in certain areas by getting people cynical, doubtful, just uh, dismissive or too angry to trust anyone. Um, That's a very common technique that's been used all over the world. Or another kind of thing that the platforms can be used for is to stir up and amplify ethnic or other divisions to destabilize a society or uh, harm a minority. And that's happened all over the world, especially the developing world. And always reliably after these systems show up.
2: You remind me that the UN blamed Facebook for the... uh, the genocide against the Rohingya.
3: Yeah, and, and there's a very similar pattern in parts of rural India and also in parts of Africa, where somebody realizes, wow, you can use these platforms really effectively to stir up uh, trouble in an irrational way. And if somebody sees that in their interest, then it's ex- inexpensive and readily available, so they do it.
2: So one of the things that I thought was interesting about this in a personal way, because I occasionally plow through some of the uh, privacy um, alert that they 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 ask you to read and, and 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 nobody does and I usually don't either. But but as soon as I realize that I feel fairly confident that they're they're not targeting me personally, they're not they're not identifying me by name in what they, in the information and data that they collect. I feel a little reassured and I click okay, but it's not okay now that I read your book because they're putting me in a basket with other people who have responded to certain stimuli uh, who have various attributes similar to mine and I don't have to be targeted personally. I'm still targeted along with the thousand or a hundred thousand other people. Am I on the right track in describing what you say?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, It's a giant statistical machine. and, And it's important to understand that. It's not so much that each person is specifically targeted, but rather the person is targeted as part of groups that are detected as being similar, because that's the only way they can perform enough experiments for the algorithms to adapt. In other words, in order to perform a thousand experiments on you to figure out what would get you to do something differently, it could take months, but if they have 10,000 people who have appeared to be similar in enough ways they can do them all simultaneously and move much faster algorithms are sampling the results of their little micro experiments and the micro experiment might be something like changing the color in an ad or the just wh- how soon you see one kind of a thing after another thing in some ways these correlative arg- um, algorithms can notice things about you that you don't know about yourself they might notice the onset of disease that you haven't been informed of they might hmm. Notice um, all kinds of things. I mean, uh, uh, if you go to a session, a, a session where Silicon Valley companies are selling their abilities, they'll still make extraordinary claims. They'll say, "We can tell where a woman was is in her cycle and use that to get her to buy things." That's a very routine claim. Pretty, pretty wild stuff. Um, but the thing, or another one is, they can detect pregnancies before the people know. That that's they, a, that's, they,
2: that that that's real.
3: It's um, true. Well. Here's the thing, all of these things are statistical, so there are incidents that are real. My suspicion is that it's only barely true. Um, A lot of these effects are slight. So for instance, Let's say that the predictive or the manipulative ability is just a percent above random. If you can have a 1% ability, then you get the, peop- the people who are your customers to pay more into you because they're afraid that, they'll, that that 1% will start to be leached away from them. And so gradually you start to accumulate more and more power and influence over time and the society as a whole becomes more sort of uh, chaotic and dark.
2: So one of the things I don't get is, if it's so evil, why isn't it outlawed? But it sounds like it's really possible to cheat people out of their money with this. For instance, on this podcast, I love it that more and more people are listening. It makes me feel great. If I bought the services of some company that offered fake downloads, downloads by machine, and no, no human was listening to them, but the machine was downloading it, and it got registered as a download, then the people who advertise on this and through their ad uh, buys uh, are really supporting the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook. So it would be, it would be, I'd be like Robin Hood, but I'd be nevertheless robbing the advertisers by, by virtue of, as far as I can tell, chances to do this that now exists.
3: Well, that style of fraud is universal at this point and has become the core of our society. Uh, fake people run everything now. Fake people determine what's popular, who gets elected. And everything. I mean, it's just, and not, not, I don't mean that fake people are voting. I mean that fake people create social perception that then uh, affects who gets elected. Uh, now, there's something to say about this, which is that um, a slightly geeky, if it's okay. Um,
2: sure. If if it's too geeky, I'll get you to explain it to me.
3: Well, this is geeky not in a a science way or a tech way, but actually in a legal and finance way. When uh, Facebook went public, they talked the SEC somehow into accepting these new kinds of metrics for the value of a company of just how much people are looking at it. And then subsequent companies like Twitter that went public were forced to accept the same metrics, and so what that means is that the companies have a direct cash incentive, you know, uh, to not purge themselves of fake people. Whenever they do a big purge of fake people, they get they lose money, their value gets dinged, uh, and they have every incentive in the world not to know how many fake people there are, and so nobody actually knows.
2: So, so they it sounds like you're saying they can they can actually engineer the. The algorithm, so that it's, what's happening is even hidden to the company itself.
3: Well, let's say, for instance, if if a company like Facebook was really serious about never having a fake person, they could demand all kinds of authentication. They could Uh, they could demand uh, they could have people go out. I mean, it, it might be expensive, but then it would be very real. And and, and this type of fraud you talked about wouldn't happen. Um, in fact, it's very easy to start fake accounts in any of these. Um, for instance, I've never had a real account in any of these, and yet there's constantly fake versions of me on Twitter and all the rest of them. Uh, and they're good. Fake. So, if
2: anybody thinks they're hearing from you on Twitter, they're not.
3: They're not. But the but the various fake versions of me on Twitter um, are convincing. I've had Microsoft, that sponsors my research, um, tweet out. Oh, you know, here's here's Jaron's Twitter account, and <laughs> even they were fooled. I've had uh, I've had all like because the, the fakes are good, and and the fakes are created automatically in a way that's effective. Now, could the companies really detect these fakes and get rid of them? There might be some regulations that suggest they should be doing a better job of getting rid of all the fakes, but. The direct monetary reward is created Mm. by these valuations, and that's definitely pro-fake at this point. Everything about it to its core has from the start, and and, and this, oh God, this has a long history. When we originally did the internet's architecture, uh, and I say we because I was involved back then, the decision was made to make it very bare bones to create room for entrepreneurs to build businesses. And that was a humongous mistake. So it, it didn't have any way of representing people at the start. And that, that function had to be filled by companies like Facebook, which then turned it into a monopolist manipulative society destroying <laughs> thing. You know, it was horrible.
2: Wasn't, wasn't your own personal experience one of suffering at one point from some of this addictive behavior with social media?
3: Well, there was a really interesting formative experience for me back in the 80s when we were just starting to experiment with what we would call social media today, uh, where people could get together and post on forums for the first time. And what was remarkable about that is that it's, and that was before there was a commercial motive. That was before this whole manipulation machine, even just in the most bare bones form, it did seem to bring out the worst in people. It did seem to, I call it the inner troll, it seemed to bring out a troll aspect of a lot of people. And I found it in myself, much to my amazement. Um, and I have some theories about why it's there and what it is that I can tell you about. But I think the key point is that it was a horrible thing and it made not only me, but a lot of people swear off the stuff until we could figure out a better design that wouldn't bring out the worst in people. But companies like Facebook and Google have essentially monetized that monster. They have, they, instead of trying to design away from it, they have said, okay, this is great. This is a thing we can make money from and more and more money.
2: So I don't, I don't want to invade your privacy. But what was your, what did you go through that you can tell me about?
3: No, no, there, there's nothing. Uh, there's no, there's nothing to keep secret here. Just I noticed myself becoming a creep, uh, and I, I, hated it. Uh, so like, and I'm, I'm sure this is an experience that's familiar to a lot of people. You're in an online forum, and suddenly. You start saying horrible, vindictive things about somebody else, or you try to trap them in some way that humiliates the other person, or you get into this spat over nothing. Um, and I think the first time it happened to me, it might have been about brands of pianos.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> There's something important that you had to say about pianos, right?
3: Well, listen, I care. I am, I am a piano snob. And,
2: yes <laughs> what do you mean
3: uh, if if you don't accept that the mason and hamlins are the best american piano we're going to have a problem okay but <laughs> let's you know but the thing is um if if you and i are talking about piano makes uh now we would do it civilly and it would be fun but online somehow it can become weirdly cranky and vindictive and nasty it, it it's just and. So I, I have a theory about it, which is um, I think people uh, can function, broadly speaking, uh, in one of two frameworks. We can either be lone wolves or wolves in a pack. And the thing is, when you're functioning as a, a, a member of a pack your whole way of thinking about the world is different. Um, the most important thing in the world to you becomes politics. You're thinking about who's competing with me in the pack, who's above me in the hierarchy, who's below me. And the thing you have in common that bonds you to people is opposition to other packs. And so so politics is reality. If you're a lone wolf, you're responsible for your own food and shelter. You have to assess the world. You become a scientist. It's, it's <laughs> Reality becomes dominant instead of politics. And so it's, it's a totally different, uh, want to use a the fancy word? It's a different epistemology, and um, and I think what's happening um, it, when you're when you're thrust into these online groups where there are these other people, um, you're a little disconnected from reality, and there's nothing to gain but mind games. The only the only thing available is politics, and so this inner pack psyche comes out, and you become just hyper political, and that's when you become nasty
2: so if all this manipulation is making us weirdly cranky with one another and if it can even make us hate one another what can we do about it we'll find out right after this break This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Jaron Lanier. Jaron seemed to feel that one of the main problems we face on the web is anonymity. So I wondered, well, do you think that it would be better if we were all personally identified on the Internet that you couldn't have the situation like the New Yorker cartoon where the dog says on the Internet they don't know you're a dog? They'd have to know that you're Jaron Lanier.
3: Yeah, and that, that New Yorker dog cartoon uh, was from very early when we were just, we had just come out of those debates. So, you know, um, at the time the Internet was designed, um, there was this very strong uh, distrust of the government. Um, It came from the left because of the Vietnam War and the pot laws and the draft and all kinds of things. And it came from the right because of the speed limits that Jimmy Carter had imposed and the way that people used anonymity on CB radio to evade the speed limits. But at any rate, all young people thought the thing to do is to hide from the government. And so the feeling was that the best way to protect liberty and make the world good would be to not have people represented online so people could be anonymous and slink about. Um, And I think that was a structural mistake, a core mistake. Uh, There should be a way for people to be authenticated, but with protections where that can't be abused. And that's actually doable. Whereas if you have a world where everything's fake, that's very hard to work with.
2: So that really leads me to ask you about the provocative title of the book. Should we, should we do what you suggest on the book and delete our social media accounts right now? And if we do, what effect would it have? I doubt well, all of us would do it, especially if we're addicted.
3: There's no way I'm going to get everybody to leave at once, uh, and and the reason why is both the addiction and also what we call network effect, which is if everybody else is on Facebook, then it feels like leaving Facebook disconnects you from everybody.
2: Mm. Mm. So and so we're stuck. What do we do?
3: Yeah. So my belief. In fact, my certainty is that uh, companies like Google and Facebook can function to the benefit of society instead of to the detriment of society, but what they have to do is change their business model. Right now, anytime there's any connection between people online, it's financed by other people who want to manipulate the people who are connecting, right? And that's a recipe for a society based on manipulation almost by definition, and Uh, It's almost impossible to get out from under that to something that's clear and sane.
2: It sounds like you're saying that these benefits that we believe we're getting from Facebook, the community with other people, for instance, uh, will be served in the future when things are more positive because we'll pay for them rather than people paying for them who simply want to manipulate us. Does that mean that as that multiplies, is an unseen, presently unpredicted problem that those with more money will have more access to information and the sense of community that you get from being on Facebook? Will we excommunicate those with not enough money to keep up with the rest of us?
3: Right. Well, to some degree, it's hard to know what the overall effects will be of a of a societal design until you actually try it, which is uh, unfortunate. But the other piece that's maybe even more important is I think people should be paid for their contributions. If somebody adds value to Facebook by adding a great post that people like, they should get paid. And if somebody uploads a video to YouTube that increases the value of YouTube, that person should get paid. And not just because YouTube handpicks a few people like a communist central planner, but just as a matter of course, people who add value should get paid. So um, the plan, I'm talking about, wouldn't be utopian, it wouldn't be perfect, but it ought to create a broader economy, it ought to support more people, it ought to create a broader distribution of dignity and self-determination. And yeah, it would probably leave some people out and we'd have to adjust for that. Um, The problem is I don't know a perfect plan. I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect societal design or a perfect economy.
2: Every new advance probably will always give us, I would imagine, things to deal with that we don't know how to deal with until we realize how complicated it is. And we've never had anything as complicated as the algorithms that run the internet, would you say?
3: That's probably true, although complexity is a bit in the eye of the beholder. And the manipulation system I've described, once you see it in those terms, actually becomes rather simple.
2: Simple in what way?
3: Just the motives and the, the way it works is all very clear. Third parties come along um, in the hopes of gaining power by manipu- manipulating people over a universal information system that's designed to addict and manipulate them via algorithms and um, money concentrates as a result. It's it's actually a pretty simple system a- at its core. And it's, it's one that is not survivable. I mean, if it just keeps on running the way it is, uh, it'll destroy us.
2: You say in the book, charmingly, we should all be more like cats than dogs. What did what did you mean by that?
3: Um, and believe me, I had to work this through very carefully with my dog lover friends, so as so not to cause any offense. But let us admit for a second that cats are different because they're only semi-domesticated. You can put a cat out in the world, in the wild, and it will survive. The cat will figure out... Um, how how to manage. And uh, there are strong arguments that cats kind of domesticated themselves. Uh, It wasn't a matter of a human going out and finding a cat and saying this would be a useful animal. They just sort of showed up and they're here on their own terms. And that gives them a kind of an independence. They're not as reliably trainable. Um, if you look at the history of behavioral experiments, let's just say there's a lot more with dogs than with cats because dogs actually respond to this stuff. I mean, when people do try to train cats, the wonderful thing is that they're not reliably trained. They can learn the tricks, but whether they do the trick is a little unpredictable. And so I think that quality of integrating into a high-tech society, but still being yourself, still being independent is the thing that's so charming about cats and why they're so popular online. And so my theory is that this obsession with cats and videos and whatnot online is people longing for their receding independence. It's this longing for us not to lose our cat natures.
2: You talk about, in the book, in your 10th argument, the threat to us spiritually, which is different in, in, in severe ways from the threat to privacy or our own decision-making. I I get the impression you feel that's the most important argument against what
3: we've been talking about. The spiritual, the spirituality algorithm um, argument, I think is maybe the closest to my heart because I feel that what's happened in tech, the tech culture around this gigantic power concentration that's come about since we run these networks. um, It's essentially a new religion and it's, it's, a medieval religion. It's a religion in which you believe that the world's going to end and that those who are true believers and get on the inside of the right circle will gain immortality and that those who aren't will die.
2: So let me, let me try to simplify it so I understand it. Are you saying that we've created a godlike entity that we expect will save us from our own depravity?
3: <laughs> well, uh, n- n- I I think it's worse than that. So if you—that's oh, talk- pretty
2: bad already. <laughs> <laughs>
3: If you talk to a lot of the people, about my friends in the tech world, like the, the folks at Google, for instance, they'll say the reason they're gathering all this data is because ultimately what Google is, is not an advertising empire, but it's an AI empire. And that what it's doing is it's building the super creature, the super AI that will inherit the earth. And, um, and then um, either the true believers will be able to upload themselves into the giant computer in the sky and live forever or something, Um, although some believe that mankind will perish and it'll be for the better because there'll be a higher form of life that we've brought about. And it's participating in that machine that really is the ritual of this new religion. So it's really something new and distinct. It's a new peril.
2: divorcing yourself from social media or never, never having engaged with them or married them, you have given yourself the chance to turn to one of your loves, which is music, which is soul-stirring instead of soul-stealing. <laughs> and and uh, I notice in my personal life, if I need to, to downgrade the tension I feel I'll sometimes play a card game on, on my iPad. I see my wife, on the other hand, go to the piano and make music. Mm. And for somebody like you with 1,500 instruments in your house, it sounds to me like you gravitate toward music for solace in a way that is much healthier than those of us who go to the card games on the, on the screen.
3: Well, healthy, you'd have to talk to my wife and daughter about that, because <laughs> I think five instruments is healthy, maybe 50, 1,500. <laughs> I think there should at least be a question asked. Uh, but well, uh, what are no, they? What, I,
2: what, what range? They're not all pianos, right? You don't have that big a house.
3: <laughs> no, uh, they're not all pianos. Um I just go through these different periods of becoming fascinated with some instrument that I haven't played and wanting to learn all about it and learn to play it and travel to wherever it's from and meet the people who are involved in it. And I've been doing that now for decades, and, and after a while, you do end up with a lot of instruments. So you have um,
2: oods, Yeah. How many oods do you think
3: you have? Oh, listen, if you know how many oods you have, you don't have enough <laughs> oods. <Like, laughs> like, that's the first rule of the oud, but um, <laughs> I um. Do you have do, you have, a, do I, you have
2: Chinese string instruments and anything like that? Are they all weird? Are they all unfamiliar to Americans?
3: Um, no, not all of them. No, no, I, I love I love a lot of traditional American instruments too. Um, so my current obsession—I have a few current obsessions. but one of them is pedal steel.
2: What what does is that? Is, mean? Uh,
3: a pedal steel have you ever noticed in country music or like older country music there'll often be this sort of horizontal device with somebody seated and there's a bunch of pedals and it plays this incredibly luscious sort of angelic continuous sound that's just like sort of wafting through the music
2: oh great great have you ever have you ever seen or played or do you own a uh, Franklin Glass Organ,
3: yeah, those are called glass harmonicas. Uh, that's I, what I meant. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, I do play that, and that's a um, exceptionally wonderful instrument. That's purely American. That was a thing that oh, the stories about that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was in Paris and uh, saw someone uh, playing music on wine glasses by moving their fingers around the wine glasses, and had this idea for an invention where he could turn the glasses on on their side and cup them inside each other to make a row that you could play like a keyboard where it would rotate against your fingers and so he made this thing and it just sounded angelic and stunning and something completely new in the world um and it had remarkable um effects on the world uh one thing is that there was this crazy guy named mesmer who decided to use its angelic sounds as a early form of hypnosis that's where mesmerize comes from yeah he also um i
2: didn't know he used the uh the franklin invention for that
3: oh yeah that was his that was his device of hypnosis that was oh, isn't that, what,
2: think, history crisscrosses in so many interesting ways doesn't it Our conversations on this podcast often touch on empathy because it seems to me that's central to good communication and to good relations with other people. Mm -hmm. And I was interested to see in your book that you feel that these platforms that we're talking about break down the ability, they inhibit the ability of people to have empathy for one another. Am I right about that?
3: Yeah, I do make that claim what How does it happen? Well, the problem is when everybody is being given different experience feeds and those feeds are calculated to certain ends which are to manipulate them, then people just it follows um, by definition. That people will have less common experiences with each other.
2: We don't hear we don't hear from anybody who doesn't share our point of view. So we don't have the opportunity to take on the point of view of another person, which is one of the functions of empathy. Is that
3: right? Well, we don't know what the other people have experienced. Yeah. So um, we haven't been in a common environment and perceived it differently. We've been in different environments that are invisible to each other. And that circumstance makes it exceptionally hard to gain a sense of sympathy or empathy for anyone else. And I should say um, there's an interesting history to the word empathy, especially in this context, because it was originally invented by uh, psychologists about a century ago, approximately in anticipation of virtual reality and this idea that the original the original meaning of the term was that you could imagine yourself in any place in the universe you could imagine what it would be like to be a mountain or a leaf and then in the 80s when we were starting uh, virtual reality um, i started to use it as a suggestion for a betterment of humankind that using virtual reality maybe we could project ourselves into the shoes of others to more to get more of a sense of what their experience was, to understand where they were coming from.
2: There are artistic examples in our culture that go back a long time, like plays, uh, story, where we are introduced to the experiences of other people and are invited to see the world through their eyes. And it sounds like that's what you had as a hope for virtual reality. Is it, is it still possible?
3: Well, I mean, if you had interviewed me in the 80s, you would have heard me, I think, speak quite um, persuasively and passionately about the potential for virtual reality to, to foster empathy. Um, I still think it's possible, but any possibility of that kind is currently overwhelmed by the horrible incentives where um, sneaky manipulation is the only thing that makes money. And so in that context, it's very, very hard to have anything like genuine empathy appear. Mm. Well,
2: you're making me think twice about the tweet I'm about to write after we finish our conversation about the latest podcast we just posted yesterday.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what, Alan, instead of just tweeting, start to develop some other methods and have a goal of not having to tweet in... um, five years or something. Like if you have the pot, as I point out in the book, the podcast is one of the least corrupted media forms on the internet so far. It could and, and
2: of all the podcasts, this is the least corrupt.
3: <laughs> of course. Of course.
2: I so much appreciate your bringing in these ideas, very stimulating, very provocative and very scary. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sharon. So before we end, we we always ask our guests to, if if it's okay to answer seven quick questions with seven quick answers are you up for that
3: i'll give it a try right. it's
2: not embarrassing i don't know
3: it's the quick answers part that's <laughs> going to be the challenge
2: <laughs> okay here's the here's the first one what do you wish you really understood
3: um Right now, I wish I understood space-time. I'm really going crazy trying to understand gravitation, and uh, uh, I have a bunch of friends also interested in it.
2: What do you wish other people understood about you?
3: Oh, my. Um, You know, I feel pretty well understood, actually. I, I don't think I've created too much of an artifice of myself.
2: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: <laughs> That's it. There you are. Okay.
2: How, how do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: Um, I've occasionally had that flaw in my own character um, and uh, fireworks uh, <laughs> fireworks
2: yeah carry a, carry a firecracker around with a Roman candle you light at the oddest moment,
3: pull, pull the plug. I don't know, okay.
2: Is there anyone for whom you you just can't feel empathy?
3: Oh, well. Yeah, this is. So this is a poor question to ask a quick answer. Uh, you know, there are horrible people in the world. There are people who are appalling who we just have to exclude from our empathy—Nazis and so on. Um, the problem is, they're getting to be enough of them um, that. Uh, you know we 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 risk narrowing the world to the point where we can't do anything with it if we exclude them so it's it's hard it's really hard this is why i keep on coming back to whether our technologies are bringing out the worst in people i think if we can try to not bring out the worst in people at least we can make that question less difficult to answer
2: how do you like to deliver bad news in person on the phone or by carrier pigeon
3: <laughs> um As I as I think about an answer, I have to say I feel stunningly fortunate to have not been tested in that way as much as many people I know so far in my life. Although of course that won't last forever.
2: Sounds good and lucky to me. Last question: What if anything would make you end a friendship?
3: Um, Yeah, this happens rarely, but it has happened, and um, it's usually. A loss of trust, hmm. a feeling that trust can never be regained. And at that point, you become stuck. And um, it's a horrible thing to come to that spot, but I've, I've experienced coming to it.
2: Well, this has been a really fun, interesting conversation with you. I thank you so much.
3: Thank you. I, I really, uh, it's, been, it's been great fun.
2: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. I haven't deleted my Facebook account yet, but I have to say this interview with Jaron has made me rethink everything about social media. Jaron is one of the most fascinating intellects of our time, and he's an enlightened, engaged person who clearly has a handle on the ethical ramifications of modern technology, for better or worse. You can learn more about Jaron on his website, www.jaronlanier.com. And as you might imagine, there are no links to a Twitter or Facebook account. But there are links to as many fascinating books about technology and AI including his latest one called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, Our tech guru is Allison Coston, Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Christian Picciolini. I can
1: sit across the table from, uh,
2: you know, a neo-Nazi, whether he's wearing khakis and a polo or has swastika tattoos on his face. And I can let all the ideological talk just kind of fly by me. It doesn't bother me. Uh, and maybe that's because I used to say it. Sometimes it means sitting with my fists in a ball, you know, under the <laughs> table and, and being really angry internally. But what I do is I introduce them to the people that they think that they hate. I can tell you that every single time I've done that, I've never had a bad experience. And everybody's always walked away different. At a time when there's an awful lot of hate in the air, Christian Picciolini has helped hundreds of neo-Nazis to turn away from bigotry and violence. He knows them well because he was once a leading neo-Nazi organizer himself. Listen to our fascinating conversation next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.